1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body that he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is, ra- it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a, living, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as it is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that, they, that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, once again, would you give us spiritual sight to see, to believe, to take to heart things which are beyond our imagination and our understanding. Amen. Look, living in the place we heard about in the first talk will be really rather good. That's the, that's the truth. It'll be fantastic. It will be beyond imagining. But not all of the problems that you and I endure in this life are external issues, uh, problems with the world out there. It's not just other people who make our lives miserable by winding me up and letting me down. It is not just work and weather and tube strikes that make life difficult in this world. It's also me, you, 
I am not perfect and neither are you. I bog up relationships. I do stupid things. I make bad decisions. And that's why we, we sometimes just feel a nagging sense of unease, a, a sort of itch that things just aren't quite right in me. So all the furious culture wars being waged at the moment over gender identity and transgender ideology, at heart, they are an expression of the fact that as humans, we don't know who we are. We are not happy with who we are. We are confused about who we are. We're not at peace with our, ourselves and our identity. Now, sometimes we don't feel like we know who we are. And other times, perhaps worse, we do know who we are, but we don't like what we found. We don't feel at rest and at peace. Humanity is a race of restless wanderers, and it plays out in a, in a whole heap of different ways, I think. Um, we regret our past, and we, we wish we could have our lives over again, and we spend, well, useless hours thinking over the past, wishing we could make this decision again, do that relationship again, have that interview again, just, just take me back to that decision moment, we think. And all that time is so well spent because it changes nothing. We can't seem to keep peace in our families, our friendships, our relationships, our marriages. We resolve to do better. We, we wish other people would change. And then we realize that again and again, the same issues keep cropping up. And we wonder whether actually the issue is me. Uh, we're tired out by the battle with our inner demons. We wish we could be free of some of those sinful desires. And at the same time, we can't imagine living without them. For some of us, it is as fundamental as this. We look in the mirror and we just don't like what we see looking back. And beneath it all is the sense of time passing and bodies aging. It was my birthday not so long ago and I was given this rather nice Garmin watch. It's a fantastic gadget. Uh, it records all sorts of incredible information, heart rate monitor, steps. I like the steps monitor because I own a dog and therefore I average over 15,000 a day, which makes me feel smug because it's, it's a high average. But it's, it has started to dawn on me recently that the age I am, the times it records for 10K are not going to be any quicker than the times already recorded. I am never going to get faster than I've been. And so instead, what this watch does with exquisite accuracy is record the slow, inexorable decline of my bodily health. <laughs> this is a daily reminder that I am dying bit by bit. It's just what I wanted for my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and you may not be aware of it yet, but it's true for you too. Every single one of you is a day closer to dying than you were yesterday. Now, some of us here already know that all too well. Already we limp because of physical or mental health issues that make us aware that all is not right in our body and our mind. There's, a, there's been a couple of royal weddings this year. There's, or in the last 12 months, there's been Harry and Meghan and uh, the other one. Um, and uh, <laughs> I have no idea. The, uh, and there's been a frankly baffling amount of attention paid to the outfits people wear turning up to the royal weddings. Yeah, a few of you are nodding and a few of you are looking blankly. Uh, the, but it is just baffling. Uh, the, the forensic detail with which they study the outfits of punters walking into this wedding, it's extraordinary. But even I get that you dress up for a royal wedding. 
You dress up for a royal wedding. And right now, you are inadequately clothed, if I can put it that way, to enter the new creation we heard about in the first talk. The body that you have right now, the mind that you have right now, it's just, it's inadequate clothing for entering something as glorious as the new creation. It's like turning up to a royal wedding in sweaty gym clothes. You just don't do it. But the Bible has very, very good news for us at this point. Uh, God has a plan for you. And you can summarize it this way. Negatively, what you are now is not what you will be. What you and I are now is not what we will be. One day we will be resurrected. We will be righteous. We will be relational. We will be rewarded and we will be remaining. In other words, one day we will be at rest. And what we're going to do is a, a series of very short meditations with time to pray in silence at the end of each one. I think uh, we're content overload after yesterday, so we'll do things slightly differently this morning. We're just going to look in a couple of minutes and then think, a couple of minutes and think, a couple of minutes and think. Uh, hopefully that'll, uh, that'll help us. You've got the points in there if you want to take notes. But firstly, we will be resurrected. When I die, I rot. That's what Bertrand Russell, the great atheist philosopher, claimed. But if you're in Christ, that is not true. If you trust in Christ, then just as his body that was laid in a grave did not rot in the ground, but was resurrected to glorious, immortal, undying life, so our bodies too will be raised with his, for we are in Christ. Uh, the teaching um, of 1 Corinthians 15, which Ben read for us a moment ago, summarized in, in Philippians 3, 19 to 21, where Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring all things under his control, will raise our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our lowly bodies will be transformed so that they will be like his glorious body. Uh, the facts that we, uh, we learn in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that flesh this out no pun intended, uh, are that um, uh, we'll have physical bodies, firstly. Uh, so we'll have physical bodies as the Lord Jesus was resurrected to a physical body. We won't be reincarnated to be some other being, not a different person. Do you remember the, um, the, the spirits under the throne in heaven in Revelation 6? They know who they are. They know they've been killed martyred on earth and they're crying out for justice so they continue to be the same person when Jesus is raised to new life the disciples are able to recognize that it's him his new body is recognizably his it still had crucifixion scars now medals of his glorious salvation and our bodies will be recognizably ours verse 49 just as we have borne the image of the earthly man so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man we will have a body like his body we we'll have physical bodies like his. Secondly, the change will be instantaneous rather than gradual. Verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Physical bodies instantaneously changed, and those bodies will be immortal. We won't grow old or fade or die. We'll say those are words of remembrance. They do not grow old as we grow old. Those who have died. 
the time will come when in a far more glorious way we will say we do not grow old as we grew old. Verse 52, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying is written, that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Then we really will sing, where, O grave, is your victory? Where death is your sting? We'll mock death on that day. We'll be free from it forevermore. Those are the facts. We'll get a new body, like Christ's body, a new physical body. It will be an instantaneous change and we will endure forever. Now, the image that Paul gives us to help us get our heads around that in verses 36 to 44 is this, this little conquer. Genetically, this little conquer is exactly the same as the enormous horse chestnut tree I took it from just out there. Genetically, it's the same thing. That tree is nothing that isn't already hidden in this seed. And your resurrection body relates to your earthly body the way that that glorious tree relates to this tiny little shriveled conquer. What does that mean? I don't know, literally, precisely, we're not told. But Paul gives us this image to help us imagine. C.S. Lewis famously suggested that the dullest, most interesting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. What a thought. The dullest person at church who you think is just not worth your time in your more judgmental, unkind moments. If you could see now what they will be in glory, you would fall on your knees and worship them. Is that correct, C.S. Lewis is imagining? I think he's probably onto something. Because you notice when John, in John's vision of Revelation, if you read it, and you keep on having these moments where the angel speaks to John and John falls down on his knees to worship. And the angel says, what are you doing? Get up, you idiot. I'm not God. That's God. But the angels are so glorious that John keeps falling on his knees to worship them. And the angels are not made in the image of God. And the angels are not restored in the image of the glorious son of God. We will be more glorious than the angels. And if John is tempted to worship them, goodness knows what you and I will look like. What we do know for sure is that your future in Christ is this, freedom from decay and death in a resurrected body like Christ's resurrected body. Physical, eternal beings to enjoy God's physical, eternal new creation. Our lowly bodies will be like his glorious body. Let's spend a couple of minutes just praying, reflecting, praising God on our own. Father, we thank you and praise you that we look forward to the day when we will be resurrected, that the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power that enables him to bring all things under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Amen. Secondly, we'll be righteous. So if you turn to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, right at the end of the Bible, just before Revelation. Now, it's important to understand that in the Bible, when it talks about children and parents, almost always 
There are two points being made. One's about inheritance, the other's about resemblance. Chips off the old block. Parents resemble their children. Uh, children resemble their parents. And in 1 John 3, we'll start at verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, what does it mean when it says like him? In what way like him? It's clear, actually, from the context here that he means morally like him. Look at verse 3. All who have this hope of being made like Christ purify themselves just as he is pure. See, it's about moral resemblance. We'll be like him morally, sinlessly. And so because we've got that hope that one day we'll be sinless, we fight sin now. So today, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are righteous, perfect by faith. God declares you, counts you, treats you, views you as morally perfect already. And one day that status will be a reality. Today, we're free from the penalty of sin. Jesus endured it for us on the cross. Today, we're free of the power of sin. The Holy Spirit now rules us, not sin. And one day when Jesus returns, we'll be free from the presence of sin forever. Be free of pride and envy. The day is coming when you will never again compare yourself with anybody else. Imagine how liberating that is. Never take dark pleasure when someone you envy falls flat on their face. Never feel miserable about yourself because you wish you had their looks, their body, their mind, their gifts, their courage, their wealth, their family. Free of pride and envy. Be free of lust. In the new creation, you see a stunningly beautiful person and not be tempted to think perverted thoughts about them. Never feel that rising pressure and that resigned knowledge that sooner or later I'm going to give in. That resigned knowledge that sooner or later guilt and shame are going to come for a few days. Never that feeling that your desires are like a mouse trap, you know, just held on a hair trigger, ready to. Free of lust. Be free of self centeredness and self absorption. Free to love and enjoy other people because we'll no longer be turned in on ourselves. Our, our, our whole happiness and well being tied to me and my circumstances. Instead, our hearts will be open to the world and its people free of self-centeredness. Negatively, you can think uh, of the Ten Commandments when you read them, and actually they're ten promises. One day you will have no other gods before me, God says. One day you will not make any idols. You'll think true thoughts about God. One day you will not steal. One day you will not hate. One day you will not lie. Positively, the fruit of the Spirit will perfectly overflow from our hearts. Your heart, the truest description of your heart, in a way which is individually true for you, will be that you are and you produce and you're marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. 
just like Jesus. It's not we'll lose our personalities, but we'll lose the sin that ruins our personalities. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One day you will be sinless as Jesus is sinless. Just let that thought sink in. Not as sinless as the holiest Christian you know at church. Don't say who you think that is. Or as holy as the holiest Christian whose biography you've ever read. You'll be as sinless as Christ himself. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I'd like us to do something now, on our own again, in silence. Confess your sins to God, and as you do so, remember that the day will come when you will do that for the last time. And if Jesus returns today, this will be the last moment you ever have to confess sins. Confess your sins to God and look forward to the day when never again will you have a sin to confess. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Father, thank you that the day is coming when we will be able to claim to be without sins and not be deceiving ourselves. Help us to hate and fight sin in the meantime, to confess it quickly and to live lives that show we long for the day when we'll be free of sin forever. Amen. Thirdly, hell, uh, hell, heaven is relational. Hell is other people, Sartre famously said. But when the poison of sin has been drawn out of people, actually the greatest joy of heaven, one of the greatest joys of heaven, will be other people without the sin in them. To be with others won't be hell, it will be heaven. God made us relational creatures, and in the new creation, those relationships will be perfected. Uh, you see it on the macro scale in Revelation 22, verse 2. On each side of the river in the city stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No more war. No more war. On today of all days, that's a glorious thought. We see it too on a micro scale, a chapter earlier in Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. If there's no more crying and no more pain, there must be perfect relationships. Just as relationships bring us perhaps our deepest joys on earth, they're also the places of the most bitter pain. The prophets speak of wolves and lambs and children and cobras, playing happily together, this, this vision, this apocalyptic language vision of radical reconciliation and a transformation of, of the created order. Reconciliation and peace on a scale we can't imagine. And if it involves wolves and lambs and children and cobras, it must also involve husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters, left wing and right wing, relationships perfectly restored. Other people, without those sinful things that really wind you up, that would be amazing. Absolutely amazing. And think of the people we'll meet in heaven as we relate to one another. Christian heroes of the past. You get to run with Eric Liddell and find out just how quick he was. Uh, sit round the fire with Hudson Taylor as he talks about some of the stories of the early missions into inland China. 
and then meet unknown Christians no one will ever write about, no one's ever heard about outside of their own close circle. Christians in North Korea, Christians who died in obscurity and bravery in the Arabian Peninsula and find out God was at work in ways far more remarkable than we ever imagined. Find people who we get on with better than we could possibly imagine right now, develop new friendships without losing our old ones. And as eternity goes on, we just meet more and more people and see more and more of the image of God in other glorious human beings in whom God has been at work. And of course, as we heard in talk one, as relational beings, we'll find no relationship is quite as satisfying as knowing God our creator perfectly. As righteous people, we'll know him without shame and guilt. I mean, this would just be mind-boggling. His eyes can pierce to the farthest corners of the universe and see into the darkest corners of your soul. And one day, we'll see God face to face and not be consumed. But more than that, we'll see him looking into us and not seeing anything shameful. We'll see him looking into us and not feel the need to hide. We'll see him looking into us and know only his smile and the delight of knowing and being known by God. We cannot imagine what that will feel like to know even as we are fully known. I wonder what relationship you would most like to see reconciled, restored, improved now. Why not pray that the future reality of God's radical reconciliation would help you to keep forgiving, loving and reconciling now? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that heaven will not be a private, selfish paradise. That we who are made relational creatures will live in perfect relationship, know the fulfillment of serving and loving and enjoying others. And at the heart of it will be a perfect relationship with you, our God, our creator, our soul's greatest treasure. Help us who know what it is to have a future of perfect reconciliation. Help us to be those who are quickest to forgive, to reconcile and to love in this world. Amen. Resurrected, righteous, relational and will be rewarded We'll enjoy God's gracious rewards. Now, I think this is one of the, the concepts that we struggle with most for all sorts of reasons. And I haven't got time to go into all the details. You can ask a little bit more in the, in the break if, it, if this is something that concerns you. But here are the basics. We are saved by grace. We don't deserve eternal life. We've seen that very clearly in Ephesians. For it is by grace that you have been saved, not by works, through faith, which is a gift of God. That's the message of Ephesians 2. You've been saved by grace, not by the stuff you do. And even the faith that lays hold of the salvation in Jesus Christ is given to us by God. Um, now, we also serve God by grace. Just as we're saved by grace, we serve by grace. So Ephesians 4, which we looked at uh, just a week or so ago in church, and 1 Corinthians 12 say that uh, God pours out his gifts on the church to enable us to serve and build one another up. But they're described as charisma, grace gifts. So the gifts that enable you to serve other people, the hospitality, uh, the kindness, the encouragement, the financial giving, the teaching of the Bible in small groups, whatever it is, those are a generous gift of God so that you and I would enjoy the privilege of serving other people. 
But the Bible also makes it clear that in spite of the fact that these are gifts God has given us, he will reward us for using them. I mean, it's extraordinary. He says, here's a tenner. Go give it to that person. Let me reward you with 50 quid for giving that tenner I gave you to that person. You think, that's nuts. But you know what? I'm not going to complain. That's basically the attitude we should have to divine rewards. It doesn't make sense, but it's very, very good news. And we're told repeatedly in the Bible that God will reward us. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells those who are persecuted for Jesus now, those who love their enemies and those who give, those who pray and those who will fast will enjoy the reward of your father in heaven. We're told repeatedly we will receive a crown, a crown that will last forever, 1 Corinthians 9.25. A crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. A crown of glory, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 1 Peter 5. A crown of life, James 1 verse 12. And Revelation itself is full of verses telling us how glorious our role will be as we share in Christ's rewards. We're told right at the end of the passage we read at the beginning of this weekend, Revelation 22 verse 5, that the, those who trust in Jesus will reign forever and ever. Christ will be the king but he shares out his reign with us. We get to reign with him. It's extraordinary. Where it gets really confusing, though, I think, for us is that there will be different levels of reward, it seems, in the new creation. So in Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, which I guess many of us will know, Jesus gives different amounts of gifts and talents to his servants. And as they serve him, they earn different levels of reward depending on how trustworthy they prove with the with the talents, the gifts that Jesus entrusts to them. And so there are different levels of reward in heaven. And you see it uh, taught by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. Why not flick up 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Just after the Gospels, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 3. One Corinthians 3, verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation, that is Jesus Christ, using gold, silver or costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So the, the things that we do in this life are going to pass through the great fire of God's judgment and an awful lot that looks really impressive. Some great church leaders who built enormous ministries, it'll all be burned up and turn out to have been absolutely nothing. And some very ordinary, unknown Christians who never seem to amount to much. Well, when their life has passed through the fire, it will be revealed to be incredibly glorious. But all of us will pass through and we will receive different rewards depending on how we've lived. How does that work if heaven's meant to be happiness? Well, theologian Jonathan Edwards explained that the rewards won't all be equal, but we will all be full. So he describes the new creation as this great ocean of happiness, pure pleasure, utter pure pleasure. And he says we all dip a cup into the ocean and fill our cup from the happiness ocean of the new creation. Just some of us will have bigger cups than others. All of our cups, though, will be full. But to have a bigger cup and to be able to drink a greater draft of the pleasure will be better. It will be a richer experience. 
But those who have tiny little thimble-sized cups will still be satisfied with what they have because their cup will be full. And they will recognize how glorious it is that some people have a greater capacity for pleasure and a greater cup in which to dip. And so as we serve and give in this life, we're effectively building bigger cups to dip into God's ocean of pleasure. That's what we're doing. As we serve and give in this life, we increase the size of our cup. We take it from a thimble to a mug to a flagon to a great bathtub to to fill with God's pleasure. We will all be rewarded. All our rewards will be of God's grace and all of us will be absolutely delighted. And we'll be delighted when others get more than us because we'll see it as right. When I see someone who clung on to the belief that God is good and refused to back down, even though they lived in a North Korean prison camp all their life for serving Christ, I will be absolute, I will praise God that in his righteousness, he has given them a much bigger reward than me. I think that the different scale of the rewards will also cause us joy as we see how good God is and how righteous his judgments are. Uh, In 2013, uh, George Clooney sent an invitation to 14 people to come for dinner. Very nice of him. They were friends and they'd all known him before he was famous and they went to his mansion um, in in the hills around LA and uh, when they got to the house, they found that there was a briefcase at each of their places around the table with a note on top, click, they open the attache case and there's a million dollars in cash inside, as well as a note saying that he's already paid the tax bill uh, on the gift. (laughs) That's that's the kind of guy he is. He even pays the tax on the million dollar gift. I mean, that really is quite something. And he says, and the note basically said, look, when I arrived in LA and I was nobody, you looked after me, you looked out for me, you helped me, you had me stay and you were a true friend to me when I had nothing to offer you. I now have lots, and I would like to repay you for your generosity to me. You know, one day when we enter the new creation, the Lord Jesus will say, I was despised and I was nothing, and yet you sided with me on the earth. And we'll think, I did nothing. I did absolutely nothing. But it will so pay off to have befriended Jesus and have welcomed Jesus in this life. It will so pay off. Uh, let's pray. <laughs> let's pray that we, would, that we would live for God's reward. Let's pray that we would be motivated by God's reward in a right way. And let's pray that God's reward would keep those who are really struggling, clinging on to him. Father, we deserve nothing from you and yet in your kindness you give us not only salvation but you will reward us for receiving your free gift you will reward us for serving with the gifts you've given us father if it were possible to feel embarrassed and ashamed in the new creation we would surely be ashamed by the gifts you will give us and yet we thank you that we have to look forward to not only a a perfect world but glorious reward for all that you enable us to do. Help us to live for that perfect reward, to long for the day when you will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and pin medals on the chests of your people. Amen.
Now, eternity, the, the thought of living forever and ever and ever can baffle or slightly terrify us. I remember uh, as a teenager, long summer holidays, and parents wake up one morning and parents said, we are going to King's Dominion, which was like Thorpe Park, but um, just near where we lived. And it was just so exciting as a teenager. Uh, my favourite moment of the day was... Uh, one of the rides, you queued for which carriage you want. And my little sister, who at the time was 13, queued for the very front carriage. And it was right near the US Marine base, Quantico in Virginia. And there was this massive muscle-bound Marine ended up next to her. And it was this weird ride where you didn't have your feet on anything. And so you were just hanging in space. And as they came down the long ride, there was my sister going, ooh, and this enormous Marine. It was just a beautiful picture. <laughs> like, yeah, something's not quite right here. But uh, it was just so exciting. Now, if the next day my parents had said, guess what? We're going to King's Dominion. I'd have been, great. If the next day they'd said, we're going to King's Dominion. Yeah. And the next day. And the next day. And the next day. Now, King's Dominion's a great place, but the thought of going there every day for a year, that would get dull. Ten years? A hundred years? 10,000 years? I mean, we just can't imagine that something that goes on forever won't just become, well, hellishly dull. How are we supposed to think about eternity then? Now, the Bible, I think, shows us how to look forward to it by telling us about things we wish would last a bit longer in this world and then saying, it'll be kind of like that, but better. Kind of like that, but better. Now, Isaiah, I think, does it wonderfully with some very earthy, practical imagery. So if you turn to Isaiah 65, one of my favorite passages, he talks about eternity in a way which is designed for us to be able to get our earthbound heads around. So Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah 65, 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives out but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. In other words, he says... Think of it this way, the the frustrations of fleeting earthly existence will be gone. We will build houses and then have time to live in them and enjoy them. We'll plant vineyards and have time to mature the fruit and lay down vintage wine. I love verse 22. The oldest tree in the world is a great basin bristlecone pine nicknamed Methuselah because it is 4,852 years old. Now, eternity might terrify, but the the thought of living for 4,800 years, well, think of what you could do in that time. Even for someone like me from Generation Ikea, I could learn to to build a house and it, you know, not fall down. I could have three or four goes and finally get it right the fifth time and enjoy then living in it. 
Think about the time. I mean, you can actually save up for a deposit in central London in 4,852 years. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, you could walk to church because you could buy one around the corner. Think of the hobbies that you could perfect over that time. You really could learn a musical instrument and a foreign language. Think of the travel that you can indulge, the places you could go to. Now, Isaiah gives us this image, I think, because we do get freaked out by eternity. And so it helps us to work with what we've got. It's saying, in other words, think negatively. You won't have that feeling of the the sand running fast through the timer. Life without the feeling it's the final day of the holidays and it's back to work tomorrow. Life without the feeling that, oh, I'll just never get the chance to enjoy so much that's good about this world. We will live like trees because Revelation 22 will have access to the tree of life. And who needs a bucket list when you'll live forever and explore the new creation which will be better than this one? In other words, in other words, you can summarize all this teaching of what we will be like with this. We will be at rest. Life now is marked by struggle if you're a Christian. The Christian life is described by Jesus as denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. It's a marathon, Hebrews 12. That's a long, hard run. <laughs> a boxing match, 1 Corinthians 9.26. A fight, 1 Timothy 6.12. Mortal combat against evil spiritual forces, Ephesians 6.12. It's like being poured out as you serve other people, Philippians 2.17. It is suffering grief in many kinds of trials, 1 Peter 1, 6, and being refined, having the dross burned away from us in a furnace, 1 Peter 1, 7. But it will not be like that forever. When Jesus returns, struggle ends and rest begins. Not the kind of rest of doing nothing, although actually <laughs> there is something appealing about that every now and then, but the rest of everything being right, rest in ourselves. When you look in the mirror at heaven, you will be happy with what you see. Rest with each other. Never that friction of pushing each other's buttons. Instead, we'll bring out the best of each other. Rest with the natural world. No danger, no disease, no hostility. Rest with our lot in life. We will all be absolutely thrilled with the circumstances of our lives in the new creation and rest with God and in God. So it will not be the rest of listless boredom. It will be the rest of fulfillment. Uh, apparently, uh, kids these days, none of them have heard of Harry Potter. None of them read it. Extraordinary, but that's what I'm told. Uh, who here remembers Harry Potter? Yeah, okay, good. This will work then. Uh, <laughs> In other words, waiting for the rest of the new creation is like a child waiting for the latest Harry Potter book. Restless, frustrated, desperately longing, and a right pain in the neck. Um, that's what children were like, you were like, waiting for the latest Harry Potter book. And then the day comes when the horribly overpriced book is published and released. And the parent goes out and is willing to pay almost anything just for a few hours of peace and quiet. And so buys this overpriced work of fiction and presents it to the child and then the child is at rest 
Not sitting around doing nothing, but diving in and exploring and enjoying the world that J.K. Rowling has prepared for them, given to them. That is the rest you and I will have. The rest of everything is now right, and I can enjoy what God has given, the world that he has prepared for me, the real world of the new creation. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you and praise you for what we have in your promise in the new creation. Help us to long for it, to live for it, and not to be so tied to the things of this world because we have such a glorious promise to come. Amen.